Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people who do the real work. On the podcast, you'll hear from leaders from councils, from within the NHS and other public services, and also those involved in policy development. I particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and uh, who are, are keen to share those lessons with others. Because as I think as we all know, public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but um, it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it and don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And indeed, you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. Okay, this week's podcast is with Donna Hall. I'm not going to try and hide how excited I am about this conversation. When I set the podcast up during lockdown last year, I had people like Donna in mind and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be fantastic if I could get Donna Hall on the podcast? And here she is today. She's on the podcast. So it's a fantastic conversation, as you would imagine, covering a wide range of topics. Donna wears many hats, but she's probably best known from her time as the chief executive of Wigan Council, where she led the beginning of the implementation of the Wigan deal and really put in place a new way of thinking about local public services and a local partnership, really, with local people. And we get into some detail about how that was achieved. We also talk about one of Donna's other roles, which is as the chair of Bolton Hospital. Bolton has been in the news recently with regard to the Delta variant of COVID-19, and we get fantastic insight into how Bolton, as a community and as a group of public services and local people, got together and responded to that. We also talked about how the end of COVID-19 as a pandemic does not spell the end of pressure for the NHS with a backlog of operations to get through and also people now coming forward with conditions that they have not reported over the past year. And finally, we talk about the relationship between central government and local government and uh, all things devolution, local government reorganisation and how that relationship between central and local government essentially needs change. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's get started. Donna, welcome. I'm really excited about this conversation. When I started the podcast, um, I actually had you in mind as one of the people that I really wanted to be on it. So and here you are. So you're very, very welcome. I wonder if you could just start by by telling anybody who doesn't know who you are, who you are and where you've come from. Oh, thanks very much, Andrew, and it's a real pleasure to be here today. So I'm Donna Hall. Uh, I'm from Bolton. Uh, I was adopted as a child and um, born in Crewe, grew up in Bolton, adopted by a fantastic family. And my mum and dad were both factory workers. Um, so I was the first to go to university. I went to a little school called Crompton Falls and grew up in a place called Breitmitz in Bolton. I went to Leeds University, did English and politics. And my first ever job was at Leeds City Council. Um, so I kind of stuck with local government then for the next <laughs> 30 odd years. And I've worked at doing different things, kind of strategy, policy, regeneration, uh, place-based urban renewal, that kind of thing. So I worked on things like single regeneration budget, um, city challenge, urban programme, all those things that have now turned into the town deal and levelling up and all of that yeah. stuff. Uh, so I've been doing that stuff kind of all my life. My last job in local government was as chief executive of uh, Wigan Council for eight years where we did the Wigan deal. And um, that's been quite 
well written up about. <laughs> I, I, I will ask you about that in a second. OK. Yeah. Um, but now, since I retired, I chair Bolton NHS Foundation Trust, which is just so amazing because it's my hometown. It means a lot to me that because it's where my children were born, where my mum and dad died. You know, where it's like it's got a family connection. My great granddad was in the workhouse because it was originally an old workhouse. Um, so there's like a real strong family connection to it. And I love doing that. And I'm really learning a lot about the NHS and about integration with social care. Um, I also work with you. <laughs> uh, you obviously set up the amazing social enterprise possibilities. Well, uh, I helped. I helped. No, the team, you, you know, yeah. as you well know, there's a very, very capable team there. But yeah, I, I oh, helped. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, they are an amazing team. And but thanks, Sandra. You've, you know, it's like the nicest bit of of what I do in my portfolio career is to chair possibilities lovely team brilliant chief executive in Rachel and um, just a great ethos providing fantastic a different type of social care I think which yeah. is what we're for the future um, I've had Rachel on the podcast if anybody listening wants to go back a few episodes um, Rachel as you know Donna is one of the people who's incredibly capable but uh, is quite I suppose a little shy in terms of presenting and but she's fabulous I mean it just she's so authentic yeah she's amazing and it's great working with you too so and I chair a, a think tank called New Local yeah. which was London based but since the pandemic has become um, much more we've got uh, people working all over the country now and Wales and Scotland we're taking on people from other parts of the country not just London so that's been one of the benefits actually of um, of working during I mean during it's, it's been a, it, it's been really interesting you coming on board at a new local because there it's now as an organization establishing itself as a really strong advocacy voice for local government and I think that the stuff you're doing there is is really interesting so I want to ask you one thing one of your chief executive experiences in the council arena was with the district council, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. What was it like kind of transitioning from the district level up to, a, or, or I don't know whether you would say up, but across to a unitary authority, which Wigan is? Yeah. It used to really annoy me when um, uh, that you kind of sense that inbuilt snobbery. and I, uh, I always did it myself there. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's all right. Um, you know, and this upper tier thing, which means like the more important, you know, district councils are fantastic and do amazing work with local communities. And uh, what I tend to find, you know, and, and so do county councils, but... There, it does for me it just doesn't make sense to have the two tiers in the way they are at the moment because okay. you know you get different cultures different political control and just confusion so I do think we need local government re- redesign an actual public service redesign but I loved working at Chorley um, and to be honest a lot of the work we did in Wigan stemmed from some of the early work we did in in Chorley with the Chorley yeah. smile and yeah. the um, and the circles of need work um that we did so yeah it i loved i loved working in district council and, and kind of brought some of the ideas in terms of listening differently to staff and listening differently really deeply to communities from the working Charlie. and i remember being <laughs> i remember a politician when i uh, landed in, in wigan saying to me well you can't do that here because there's too many people there's too many staff and there's too many residents you, you can only do that in a very small council but we gave it a go uh, yeah. and it, <laughs> it wasn't bad, was it? It wasn't bad. No, it wasn't <laughs> bad. I think I, I agree with you with with regards to the council tiering, and it's it's difficult to know exactly where local government reorganisation will go with the current government. I think we probably, and I'll I'll talk to you a little bit about this later on, but we probably have to think of devolution, local government reorganisation, and levelling up as three parts of the same the same triangle. It all seems to be being wrapped up in this levelling up white paper when it, whenever that comes. So if it's okay, we'll come back to that a little bit later. But obviously you've talked about Wigan and the Wigan deal, and that put in place a new relationship between the council and residents in, in Wigan. So for those who don't know, what is the Wigan deal and how did it come about? Okay. Um, and it's basically a, a different way of working and a new relationship between citizen and state that's actually quite liberating for both <laughs> both parties, I think. So it came about um, not just as a kind of lightning bolt idea, 
in, in my brain or the leader's brain. It, it was an iterative process over a couple of years where we did some work uh, in a place called Worsley Mains with a woman called Hilary Cotton, who you'll be familiar with. But I've read her stuff. I've read yeah. Radical Help. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. And you can read about some of the work she did in Wigan in Radical Help. So we, we, we worked with Hilary in Worsley Mains where she was working with families whose children were on the edge of being taken into taken away from them and being taken into children's social services um so not ideal for the family not ideal for the child and not ideal for us so we tried to map out and work out what we'd done wrong really over generations of working with with those families in worsley mains and we we got all the people who'd had contact with the family who tried to help them in different uh ways so the police criminal justice the council social care education gp hospital everyone who'd had a, a role and tried to think about what we'd done wrong and basically we'd we'd, pro, we'd tried to process them through the lens of their individual unit of need we'd seen them as a unit of need coming cool. to us you know not as a real as real people with real problems and real strengths yeah. um so we learned a lot from that about how we were spending an awful amount of money so between around a quarter of a million per family on average per cool. year over generations and yet at the end of that year they were in a worse position than they were at the beginning so we got public servants to work differently relationally in that locality and those people who were really brave enough to do that work faced a lot of antagonism from the system um they they were seen as um you know trying to book the system trying to change the way that people worked and, and quite dangerous people they were seen as but the results they got were fantastic so we learned from that. We also had no money. <laughs> so that was the second <laughs> element. So we had we knew we had to make around £160 million worth of savings with austerity cuts. So we knew we couldn't just chop a little bit off services here and there. And we didn't want to just keep going back to reserves or putting council tax up. We really wanted to freeze council tax. And we did that for eight years because we thought it was so important to... Um, to keep council tax down because that was helping people to get through austerity and it equates to around per household about 500 pounds per household that we saved families wow. by a year you know and that's a lot of money really so um we had to save the money and we didn't want to pass it on to the resident we also had some work we were doing in a place called skulls with nesta you'll have come across nesta Andrew, yes. I'm sure. yeah. And we were working with social care, looking at social care, um, adult social care. So people with adults of working age and, and older people and, and looking at some of the things we were doing, which we thought were good because they were high cost, but actually they were very poor um, and they, we weren't getting good outcomes. So we, we took all those three elements of learning, um, work with children, work with older people and people with learning disabilities and having no money i thought right, we're just going to have to completely change how we work um across all council departments initially it was just the council that kicked this off um and we started to do put in place like a public service reform program mm -hmm. um which was about people's uh, the culture of the place deep listening our attitudes to working with local communities uh, investing in communities so we put 13 million into the community and voluntary sector not in a top-down commissioned way but we asked we looked at what was missing in the local area and we tried and to get that money done, uh, sorry for interrupting was that yeah. new money or money free from other areas or we set up a transfer right at the start of austerity back in 2011 we set up a transformation reserve right. uh, so i think this is where when i look at other councils i don't think a lot of places did this they just made the cuts but didn't invest in the change yeah. in the way that you really need to so we set up a transformation reserve um we had a treasurer who really believed in reform who wasn't there just to make the cut back he wanted to think about let's try a new approach let's try a model that's a little bit braver a little bit bolder but let's see how it addresses some of our underlying problems of you know hugely rising demand huge pressures and lowering resource base yeah. Um, so having that money there, we also made some changes to the senior management team at the time because we wanted people who really believed in the deal, who really believed in yeah. having a you know more respectful, more relational way of working with citizens. Um, and not everyone did, being honest. <laughs> some yeah. people just reached for the rule book, and you know, and that was how they worked, rather than being courageous and trying new things. And we, our values were being 
positive, being accountable and being courageous. So allowing people to fail, but supporting them and trying new things. And I think the Council of Noah did be kind to that list as well. But the values were really deeply embedded through appraisal, through one to one, through, you know, and we appointed people on their attitude as well as their technical ability. Um, Yes. And that's quite unusual in public services. It is is unusual in public services, but it's so important. You read any words from any successful leader in the private sector, the third sector, you know, they'll always talk about, it's about attitude, it's about personality. You can train people. You can't create a new personality or a new attitude. It's all about that. You know, if somebody has the aptitude to learn, then focus on the things that are inherent to them, not the things that you can teach them. That work then, that took place over how, how many years? Sort of what sort of time scale are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's still going on, really, Andrew. Yeah. I think when the time I left, I'd say we were maybe halfway, 60% of the way through this change, but it's never ending and it's, you know, it, it's, it's a constant. Um, challenge because a lot of the rules that council departments are set by um, central government they don't help you to work differently they don't help you to work relationally they you know you get this kind of kpi tick box type culture that you get a lot in the nhs as well Um, so you know people tend to just follow those those rules rather than thinking creatively about people and place thinking about how they can wrap multi-departmental services around families yeah. Um, and keep them fit and well at home in the communities and build the invest in the societal infrastructure instead of just investing in new new hospital beds. Yeah. You know, the, the Marmot work that came out of Greater Manchester um, recently, the Build Back Fairer, you know, that tells us that all the things we knew at the start of austerity would happen, as predicted by Sir Michael, they have happened. And, yeah. you know, very few councils in Greater Manchester uh, and nationally were brave enough to try something different. But, you know, our mantra in Wigan was and still is, um, if we don't try something new, <laughs> everything's going to fall over anyway because of the pressures in the system. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And so has this enhanced the Wigan residents' sense of place and has it given public services more focus than maybe they had before? Yeah, I mean, I think um, they're complex, aren't they, places? You can't just say everyone, because Wigan is a, a town within the Wigan borough. Mm. You've got the Lee, which is like quite a big, uh, you know, there's this Wigan-Lee rivalry. That's where the term pie eaters comes from, is mm. the uh, is the Lee miners criticising the, the Wigan miners for going breaking a strike. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was having to eat humble pie. It's not right. about humble pie. Uh, <laughs> I didn't do that, actually. Yeah. So that's something I've learned. Isn't it? 1926 minor strike, yeah. Right. So the, the funny place is the complex, and there's lots of little villages within Wigan Borough. So to say their sense of place, I think, was more around the locality, the town, the village that people were from. Um, but hopefully what they did see and experience is that 13 million investment in local community groups. So we funded a community farm to do mental health support. We funded a, a singing group to help people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder to sing and to increase the lung capacity. You know, we funded a, a rugby memories group with the Wigan Warriors to stop them, you know, to stop um, people being stigmatised for accessing dementia services. Yeah. Uh, you know, it wasn't called a dementia memories group. It was a rugby memories group based yeah. on what people really like, which is is the sport. And they can talk about all, you know, look at the old programs and speak to the players and, uh, you know, loads of things like that. Men's football, uh, physical activity programs. And we managed to increase healthy life expectancy in the most deprived wards by seven extra years. Wow. So just on on that note, the the King's Fund have done a fantastic report on the Wigan deal and some of the outcomes. But could you just give some of the the highlight outcomes which have been achieved so far? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is the saving of the money. So um, many places decided to just use the reserves or put the council tax up rather than really trying to transform the service. And so we took the 160 million out. That was the first achievement and actually got better outcomes because we'd really thought long and hard about a future service rather than a cutback service. And expense. I know we always say we need more money and I do think we do in public services. But at the same time, there's a lot of time spent assessing people and referring them through a broken system. Yeah. And that's the bit that we need to change, I yeah. think. Um 
So, uh, yeah, so that was that. We Healthy life expectancy was a really big achievement. We've got, I think we had at one point the lowest level of delayed transfers of care out of hospital and into back into home. Really fantastic. People in social care, adult social care were amazing. Much of the start of the thinking came from adult social care. So okay. the work that, that possibilities, um, that kind of thinking that possibilities offer is kind of embedded in the adult social care team in Wigan. A very different type of public servant, really, and very more, much more creative and radical in the thinking. So we had an ethical home care framework. Uh, we funded the private sector care providers to fund apprenticeships and to invest in innovation as well. So it was a, a whole place endeavour, um, really much improving health indicators. School readiness is going in the right direction as well for early years and um, educational attainment. So, yeah, yeah. really, Re- really good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a really impressive set of outcomes there, not just outputs, but real outcomes which are impacting people's lives and you know i mentioned it before but just if anybody's interested that king's fund report is really good and it summarizes the elements of the deal and i think there's lots of learning there which i i know for a fact other councils are already looking at and trying to come up with their own thing but of course the really cool name wigan deal is already taken so <laughs> places are trying to think of different different names for the same sort of thing i, I want to ask you a bit about leveling up now and the leveling up agenda so this is one of the kind of uh, very recognizable government agenda items right now so it's very much driven by the centre at the minute, and it's about central government funding projects locally, which they decide on and they assess and decide whether to fund. But I mean, in my view, this type of funding could be short. The, the benefits could be short lived, and it could be like a sticking plaster unless councils taking the lead create that sense of place with their residents and indeed other other public sector partners. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, uh, you know, it's great that extra money is going into communities. That's fantastic. But as I said in the beginning, Andrew, I spent my whole life doing this stuff and there's nothing more soul destroying than, you know, you work intensively for, say, seven years with a local community. You know, you invest in physical infrastructure, in the social infrastructure, but then you go and the communities are thinking, like, what the hell was that all about? You know, what's my role now? Uh, and, you know, so I think it's got to be for me, the levelling up money is brilliant and the town deal money and all of that. But what has got to be at the heart of this is a completely deep shift in the role of public services in a, in a place. Yeah. You know, we, we've got to think about the community as the leaders of this rather than just necessarily, you know, the business leaders. I think we've got to put communities in the driving seat. We've got to think about the community voice in the decisions around how this money is spent. And we've got to think about a really deep and long lasting, meaningful shift in us being. Um, I like the expression. I pinched it from an NHS leader in West Yorkshire, but I love it. We are a guest in the lives of the people that we serve yeah. rather than uh, the other way around. Or, you know, local people are not a hindrance to what we our amazing plans that we want to deliver and then you know, go away, disappear into the sunset seven years later. Um, the only things that ever worked um, are some great community stuff that we did in Salford as part of the single regeneration budget bid in Seedley and Langworthy. They're still going strong. You know, the houses are built, but it's the community stuff that is the most valuable thing, I think, the most valuable asset in any place. Yeah. So what about what about devolution then? So there was the the much talked about devolution white paper, which has now been wrapped up in a forthcoming at some point leveling up white paper, definitely feels like devolution has been de-emphasized for want of a better word. Um, what do you think about devolution? Uh, I'm a big fan yeah. <laughs> of devolution. That's uh, not a surprise. I'm not surprised <laughs> that. So I, I think it's it's got to be, um, you know, I think the mayoral model, um, you've seen the leadership that's being provided by the mayors uh, during the pandemic and before the pandemic. And, you know, the fact that the mayor and GM commissioned the Marmot review is was quite a different approach. You know, I personally think Michael Marmot should be advising the government around yeah. pandemic recovery. And, you know, looking back at those six principles, the six Marmot principles, why are we not embedding those in in all of our integrated care systems, in all of our 
councils and in all of our levelling up bids. So it's not just about the physical infrastructure. Yeah. It's about the social infrastructure. It's about education, housing, everything else that goes with it. So, But devolution gives you a chance to shape the future. I mean, I'll be honest, I don't think our model of, of devolution, I've worked on devolution bids um, over the last 10 years, and it's almost like a bit of a beauty contest, really. And you go to government and to treasury and say, can we have this pot of money or that pot of money? And really, it should be more of a uniform approach so that the government has the confidence to to devolve money to localities, um, obviously within a framework of, of outcomes. Um, there could be the marmot outcomes, you know, there could be well-being outcomes as well as economic outcomes. But, you know, you've seen the federal model in Germany and how how well they did in the early stage of the pandemic because they had that federalised system where people were able to work very closely and very tightly around specific communities. So, yeah, big fan of devolution. I hope no, it comes I, back. I, I certainly am as well. And I think, you know, it is actually in central government's interest to have more more devolution because they've ended up, if you think of over the past 16 months, they've ended up carrying the can for things that they couldn't possibly do nationally but tried to like test and trace and you know it just didn't work and it was never going to work centrally run and actually if you devolved that then government could have set the overarching strategy but said okay this is local delivery with tactical decisions made made locally and i know that a lot of local areas ended up just doing their own thing anyway because of the gaps that were there but yeah no I'm I'm a big fan as well and I just don't really know where it's going at the minute but um I'm, we'll all watch this space I think <laughs> definitely I think it should be compulsory for anybody who works in cabinet office or in MHCLG to have worked in local government because yeah. uh, I think you've got a very different culture in both organizations and you know and vice versa actually you know that shared learning across the sectors um, and that understanding, I think the reason Test and Trace was set up in the way it was, was because we based ourselves on the system they got in place in Singapore. Um, but no one really understood what was already in place in local councils through the public health teams and civil re- civil resilience, um, civil contingency fora. So, you know, I think it's a basic lack of understanding. It, it, uh, it, should be, it should be a key part of the fast stream system or any system that they have there. I mean, I can say for a fact, without naming names, that the best central government civil servants we've worked with on the programmes that we've worked on are the ones who have local government experience because they're practical. They're not in theory. They have a realisation that when you're telling them something will work because of X, Y, Z, they can understand that and can appreciate that. So, yeah, I I completely agree. So I want to ask you a little bit now about the NHS side of things. And as you mentioned at the start, you're now the chair of the Bolton NHS Foundation Trust. Um, but this wasn't your, your first NHS role. When you were the chief executive of Wigan, you were also the accountable officer for the CCG. So uh, I know that this model is in place in a number of areas, but I don't think it's terribly well appreciated how that actually works. So did this in- enable placemaking in a better way or uh, what happened? How did that work? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, I mean, it was a really difficult time, I'll be honest. And fantastic people in the CCG and fantastic people in the council. But for years, we were at loggerheads, yeah. um, mainly around um, sovereignty and power rather than about a shared endeavour. So, you know, and I think part of it is the way CCG and CCGs are, uh, are becoming part of integrated care systems, aren't they? And I don't think it's the people who work in CCG's fault. I just think the design is has got a flaw in it um, or several flaws. And I think commissioning has got to change, completely change. So it's it's much more bottom up. It's much mm-hmm. more commissioned by and with communities. Um, and it's designed around the way people live their lives, not an individual service specification. We don't navigate our lives through five or six service specs, do we? we yeah. you know, so that whole thing has got to change so that the way that commissioning is integrated into ICSs needs to be outcome based. Um, and needs to be very much putting the patient and the person at the centre of the redesign. So, yeah, the CCGs are great. There you know, some fantastic GPs involved, but I think it'll be better when it's part of an integrated system. I work with GPs and 
and I let me say I'm a very very fond of GPs. I find them very very interesting because they're they are used to being, um, and I don't think any of them would mind me saying this, in charge of their entire world in their in their world, and they uh, sometimes find it difficult to come together and compromise. Uh, let's just say um, you don't need to respond to that, but that's just I'll I'll just put that out there. Um, so just. Moving then just to think about particularly COVID and, and obviously Bolton, people will know, has been in the news with regards to being particularly impacted by one of the new variants. Can you say a bit about that and what it's been like for the community and the staff at the hospital? Yeah, it's been, um, well, it's been both horrific and uh, incredible <laughs> the way that the the whole team Bolton has responded to the Delta variant hitting us really hard. Um, earlier in the year. So we had the highest R rate. So then it's not a thing you want to be famous for, really, is it? Mainly uh, amongst um, younger unvaccinated people because they hadn't qualified for the vaccine. So there was quite a bit of racism nationally kind of going around at the time on social media. It was awful. And I kind of stood up uh, on Twitter and just said, this is not right. You know, you've got, um, it's not it's not you can't blame people they weren't they hadn't qualified for the vaccine and a lot of key workers a lot of poverty in my town a lot of you know uh, people working in frontline key worker jobs that can't self they, you know they can't you know they, they're in there they're in people's homes every day yeah. so it wasn't me at all i did nothing to do i, I did nothing um, in terms of leading this it was every bit um the ccg have an amazing doctor dr helen wall who right just was phenomenal she was like a force of nature <laughs> and she led uh, the vaccine program with our brilliant uh, director of public health from the council uh, helen lowey so two amazing women called helen <laughs> yeah. um, and we just i mean all we did in the ft was say come on what can we do to help you you know and we we support we got all of our staff vaccinated within a couple of weeks actually yeah. um so six thousand people vaccinated in two weeks not bad is it the first dose and then we we supported the community efforts as well as an ft but what was really interesting andrew was the the way that it was done so it wasn't just a kind of right let's just set up these hubs um and people will come we got we did it on the basis of a really deep understanding of how bolton communities worked uh what the fear factor was amongst communities what hesitant what were the reasons behind some of the hesitancy that we were finding and you know we we worked with local community and voluntary groups to get a better understanding we used anthropology really which is what we used in the wigan deal to really deeply listen and then redesign it based on what we knew were the, were the issues. So we got um, one of the issues was access to services. So we got a bus, yeah. we commissioned a huge bus to drive around the streets of Bolton. We went knocking on people's doors uh, in the really highly infected areas, uh, BL3 and BL4. And, you know, we, we just went door to door with people who were, who were volunteers, uh, some of them, and people who were working for the CCG and the FT. And what we also said was we bent the rules a bit. <laughs> NHS England Joint Committee on Vaccination basically said, you, you know, you can't break the rules. You've got to just stick to the age limits. But we said, come um, to the bus, come to the vaccination hub, and we will find a public health reason to vaccinate you if you're over 18. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, I read about all that. I thought that yeah. was yeah. It's brave. It's courageous, yeah. you know, and that's that kind of leadership, clinical managerial leadership that listens to people, acts on what they've heard and makes bold and courageous decisions. And I'm, I'm blessed to work in a system that's like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. We also had some real issues amongst um, Catholic communities involved right. and um, particularly Polish Catholic communities. We've got quite a big Polish population in in Bolton and so we went to um, speak to a Catholic priest who said right I'm going to come on the council's YouTube channel and be injected live on TV <laughs> to show my community that it's um, it's okay and he, he agreed to it an hour before he did it and in that hour he got a hundred WhatsApp messages from his parishioners to say don't do it it's going to be yeah. terrible but he did it and it's and this is, a lot of this is down to, to the fake news going around about the vaccine and the impact it has and, and, and that as well, isn't it? 
it's partly that. There's also um, a kind of moral side to it as well, which, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the vaccine is grown in embryos, in, in terminated fetuses. So, you know, some Catholics and some other religions might disagree with I that. I didn't know that, actually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that, there's a moral kind of re- relig- religious reason behind some of it. But right. I think the kind of strength of the arguments coming from people from the Council of Mosques, from uh, this amazing guy, the Catholic priest, you know, it just, it, it's much more powerful than the council or the foundation trust coming up with a, a soundbite or a tweet or, you know, it's the real authentic voices of local people encouraging people on health grounds to protect yeah. themselves and their families to do it. I really have first-hand experience of the efforts that some areas have made to bring the vaccine into communities. So I, I was visiting friends in Lewisham and happened to be walking past the Islamic Centre, which was doing a vaccine drop-in centre. And it was like a mini carnival atmosphere. Everyone was re- really happy. And we were invited in, um, just so come and, come and have your vaccine. And we thought, great. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure to get it for a couple of weeks, but here, here we are. And it was, it was fabulous. I got, um, fist pumps with everybody on the way out and everything. And it was really, and it, it obviously, I think Lush in particular, because I know some people there have been really good at bringing the vaccine out into communities. And that seems to be, I think that works really, really well. So I just, I mean, it was my wife and I said to each other, it was one of the best experiences we've had. It was, it was fantastic. It was really it's good. It's quite an emotional moment, isn't it? When it you really was. It really, I wasn't expecting it to be, but it was like this sudden relief flooded over me and it was like, wow, this is fantastic. So um, just to, to think about the NHS briefly again before before moving on, um, it feels like, the risk to the NHS as we start to emerge from the pandemic is no longer hospitalizations from COVID, but dealing with health problems, which people perhaps have not reported over the last year because of lockdown and other reasons. Um, but also there's that ever increasing backlog of scheduled operations. So is, is that a fair statement? And if so, how, how serious is it? Yeah, it is fairly serious, Andrew. So, um, you know, we've really tried to prioritise, you know, life threatening illnesses like cancer and other conditions that people have got. And, you know, no one's been delayed for their treatment with things like that. We've just continued with that. And we've used other facilities in the locality to help us. So other hospitals, you know, maybe less uh, of an infection rate. We've had a COVID clean private sector hospital um, called the Beaumont in Bolton that we've used but it's been you know they've really worked incredibly well with us because for us it's you know some people might have a moral objection to working with the private sector but if it's saving people's lives I think anyone would want the best for the the people of Bolton so you know we've worked with them and it's been Covid uh, secure so that's been great Obviously, with the restrictions in place, we've not been able to do as many operations and the surgeons have been desperate to carry on, but we yeah. can't literally fit as many people in. Um, so it's put things back quite substantially. And, you know, we're keen to really get motoring with that now. And we're working not just in Bolton, but across Greater Manchester with all the providers working together on elective recovery and, you know, really trying to prioritise people who can who need it more than others, which is really hard to do. But, yeah, yeah it, I'm you know really sorry that people have had to wait. It's awful, um, including my own family members. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah it's it, we are putting everything into. Honestly, I've seen the project plan for elective recovery and it's like a, it's like t- taking a ship to Mars. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> we're throwing everything at it. Thank you for sharing that. And that's really good to hear. But I, I think as a as a country, we need to just appreciate that the pandemic passing is not the end of the pressure for the NHS. It's it's only going to build and it's going to be a tough couple of years, I think. Yeah. I think mental health services are going to be um, I mean, always struck me as as unfair the way that mental health services have been treated within the NHS as almost like the Cinderella service and and we described in the early days of the pandemic um didn't we that we didn't want the NHS to be overwhelmed protecting yeah. NHS was one of the three line slogans wasn't it but mental health services as part of the NHS have been overwhelmed for the last 10 years consistently overwhelmed every year and, you know, we read some horrific stories every day in the local press around where we've let people down with mental health services. We've not helped them quickly enough. When they've asked for help, we've turned them away because they're not ill enough. You know, yeah. what kind of services 
is that you know i read the other day about a, a young girl who had an eating disorder and was told go away you're not you're not thin enough you know you can only access these services when your bmi is lower you know this is not the kind of public services that we need so yeah. what does she do goes away and gets and, and stops eating it's interesting that you mentioned mental health actually the the interview before before this one was with Jane Lewington, who's the chief executive of Navigo, who provide uh, all of the NHS mental health services in northeast Lincolnshire. And she, A, gave a really good description of how mental health services work, but also um, described some of the challenges which the past 16 months will have built up and the journey ahead over the next two or three years for mental health services. So I think you, you'd you really like Navigo. They are to mental health what possibilities are to adult social care, if you like. So very, very interesting. Worth worth listening to that one. Um, Donna, we could talk about this all day, but I need to, to keep moving here and just because there's so many things that I want to ask you about. So I want to talk about the relationship between central and local government. A nice, e- easy subject for you. Um, at New Local, you are focused on empowering communities and connecting local public services to communities. Um, and that's an ambition which I very much subscribe to myself. So what what is the the state of the relationship between central and local government right now? And is that curtailing the ability of local areas to really properly empower communities? Yeah, I mean, the starting point is um, whatever the relationships are like, we live in the most centralised, one of the most centralised states in the world um, in comparison to other countries. So taking that as a as a fact, um, I think the relationships have got better during COVID. I think people in central government have seen the power of local. They've seen the power of uh, of communities of public health they understand what public health actually is now yeah. maybe but it may be a little bit too late so i do think we need a huge reform of the central local relationship and i think devolution is the way to do that so a national framework obviously set by parliament with clear outcomes for each place but then the freedom to deliver based on the needs of local communities and accountable to local communities. We've seen staff in central government increase huge in huge numbers, mainly down to staffing to cope with Brexit, yeah. uh, whilst we've seen staff in local government go the other way. So, you know, there needs to be confidence needs to be restored. At the same time, I do think local government needs a huge shake up in the way it does things. And, you know, there are some there are some councils who have not changed their modus operandi for like a hundred years <laughs> you know they're still doing exactly the same and they don't have that challenge mindset challenging themselves to do differently because they just keep the treasurer keeps bailing them out with use use of reserves and council tax increases rather than deep transformation about the role of public services and and the relationship with the citizen so i just i think it's um but when you do do that it liberates you as a leader and you as a team and also the staff, they, they reconnect them with why they became public servants, is to help people, not to tick boxes. You're you're absolutely right, though, that for a lot of councils around the country, the corporate centre has been really hollowed out and there isn't much capacity there to run change and to do anything other than firefight. So it is it is worrying, as you say. So I can't let you go without asking about your role as chair of Possibilities. So uh, we're both on the board of Possibilities and huge fans of Rachel Law, who has been on the podcast previously, and indeed the whole team at Possibilities. So just as, as a quick reminder for everybody, Possibilities is a social enterprise delivering council commissioned adult social care services and a lot more besides that. So you're the new chair there. So what drew you to that role? Mm-hmm. Um uh, in a word, Rachel, <laughs> I'll be honest, <laughs> yeah. I was just so impressed when I met her and yeah. um, and I read the I went on the website and looked at the values and yeah. the happen, happiness the manifesto, happy manifesto. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the place based working and uh, all that person centred care. I just thought this is I felt like I could have written those values. Cause I thought that just resonated with me deeply. And, you know, and then when you go in um, into the centres and you meet the people we support and you meet the staff and you see the relationship between them and, yeah. you know, it's lovely. It's like a family. Um, but it's real, isn't it? You know, there, <laughs> there are some places that 
um, talk a good game and have the right words on their website. But you visit possibilities and it's real. Yeah. Yeah. You and know. it lifts you. I always I'm always um, a person. You can tell what a place is like as you walk in. So you can feel it, you know, like an intuitive thing. But you walk in there and, you know, there's like a dog greets you on reception and. <laughs> And then you walk in and it just feels like a family home. Um, it's not institutionalised. It, people are cared for and cared about. And there's there's love. There's love there. Those services have been designed with love. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's not popular to use the word love when you talk about public service reform. But do you know Cathy Evans? I don't know if you met Cathy from Children England. Children's England. Oh, she's, she oh. would be a brilliant guest for your podcast, actually. Right, she okay. is amazing. I was on a podcast with her and Brendan Martin from Birdsog the other week and um, it was called What's Love Got to Do With It? And it was all about putting love. And she said, as a children's social worker, she asked her boss, well, you know, what's my main job? And he said, it's to love the children. And, you know, we shy away from words like that because they're a bit hippie or a bit, you know, inappropriate. But if we don't love our the people we support, then, you know, we've not got a chance of helping them, I don't think. Yeah. And then the thing about possibilities and you and I have spoken many times about answers to the social care challenges and the thing about possibilities is that yes it is a warm place it has all of the nice fuzzy bits that make you feel wonderfully welcomed and everybody entering it feels welcome which is so important but the flip side of that is it's incredibly well run Rachel and her team squeeze every last piece of value out of every pound of budget they they get they are cqc outstanding rated there's they they deal with the hard stuff as well and somehow manage to keep all of that going which is a wonder i've never i don't think i've ever really come across a place that does it quite so well as that and in such a humble um just just getting on with it kind of practical way but uh you know i keep saying to rachel we need to get we need to spread the magic of possibilities across the country and, you know, get other places to see what the art of the possible is. But she is a very shy person. And, she, is, yeah. she is. <laughs> I mean, when, when I speak to, to Rachel, I ask her how things are going. First thing she does is talk about if there's any issues, if, if there's any health problems with her staff team. That's yeah. the first thing. That's the first thing on her mind. And yeah. I'm sure they all feel that she really cares for them. So, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's really exciting and, and just uh, we're really excited to have you as, as the chair as well. So um, as, as a final question, uh, Donna, and I just really would love to keep this interview going, but the people, I think they have about an hour's uh, attention span for a podcast, so I'll have to try and bring it to a close. But as, as a final question, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or a social enterprise who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? I think self-belief is a thing I wish I'd had more of when I was younger. Self-confidence and, you know, I think you know intuitively when something's the right thing to do, but often you hold back because you think you'll sound like you're a bit bonkers or you're a bit unusual. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think just go with your instincts and have the courage and the, and confidence to do it and other people will come with you Um you know, and it'll become it's like at the start of a social movement then and it gets really exciting and builds momentum. I think humility is can't be overestimated. Having that having that self awareness that you're not perfect, you've not got all the answers, and surrounding yourself with people who challenge your thinking all the time, whether it's residents, whether it you know, colleagues from other places, uh keep looking at best practice internationally and thinking about, you know, what good could look like, what an amazing service would be like and what kind of services you would want as a citizen, um, yeah. you know, rather than what services we continue to provide in our little boxes. Think about what what good would look like from a person's point of view on the receiving yeah. end. <laughs> that's that's the kind of guidance. And just keep going. And God, it's hard at the moment. I've just been speaking to um, a brilliant social entrepreneur uh, in Bolton who was just telling me that, so many people are worn out and worn down with the pandemic and a lot of creative people, they kind of can't cope with it when there's no outlet for their creativity. Yeah. Um, and she was saying a lot of the fantastic social entrepreneurs just can't get out of bed at the moment. You know, it's like it's really yeah. badly affected them. I can completely understand that. So I want to ask you a quick follow up question on what you were saying about having the confidence to kind of you know, back yourself, essentially. So for people listening who maybe haven't made it to the leadership position yet how can they 
bring some of that into their behaviours? Um, I think, again, by being equally bold and asking awkward questions, but important questions, keeping it about the person, not the service, keeping it about the neighbourhood and think building on all the assets in the neighbourhood that they might have around them yeah. um, and listening that, you know, there's nothing that you can if you just all you do one day at work is just go in and listen yeah. to people. I think that's the day. They are days of learning, aren't they? Deep learning. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I never thought I'd be a, a chief exec or a chair. I just I would never have dreamed of that. You know, I'm, I'm Donna from Bolton. Why you are and why you're so successful at it. <laughs> I think people who are overly positionally ambitious, I think it's better to be ambitious in terms of the impact that you can try and make. And you, you, you're not bothered about what position you're in. The position will come if you have that drive to make the impact. Exactly. And impact is different. And impact isn't about hierarchy or getting to the top, yeah. is it? Impact is about feeling like you go home and you've done a good job and you've helped people. Yeah. Um, that's real impact, I think. Yeah. Donna, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been lovely to chat with you, Andrew. Well, that conversation certainly didn't disappoint. So many things I could highlight, but I've picked out three in particular. The first is how the new approach was implemented in Wigan. So the first point is that it was based on proper research, a proper pilot uh, conducted by Hilary Cottam, and the learning from that was taken and spread elsewhere. The second thing is that the new set of behaviours that were required, there was a huge amount of effort put into really embedding that within the organisation all the way down to making sure those behaviours were reflected in people's individual appraisals. And the third, and this is really important and something that a lot of people would struggle with, letting people go who didn't buy into it. Another area of our discussion, which I think is well worth highlighting, is Donna's description of Bolton's response to dealing with the Delta variant surge. Um, a number of things really jumped out, like how public services really went out into communities and met with community leaders and just used all of those different levers to try and get people to take the vaccine, not just relying on official public sector routes. And then also, I think, the fact that they were willing to bend the rules a bit. So it was pretty clear at that time that the guidance from central government had a certain age band that people were supposed to focus on. But locally, they, they made the decision to expand that and find ways to vaccinate people who were younger and that clearly has had an impact now in getting that surge under control. And the final point I want to highlight is Donna's clear advocacy for more devolution. I think we're heading into a really interesting period of months and years perhaps where you will have very strong advocates for increased devolution like Donna and that debate particularly grounded in what makes effective local areas, what makes a thriving place, where is the best level to place decisions about public services and about a place. I think this is going to be a really fascinating debate and I do not think there is alignment between what central governments currently have in mind and what very influential local leaders like Donna do. So that's everything for this episode and thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And please remember to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter or register on the website to make sure you never miss a future episode. <laughs>